So we're back again with the third podcast on the Q&A series of the Best Eli results, and this time we'll focus on outcome variables. Best Eli chose a composite primary endpoint, which included death from any cause or a major adverse limb event, defined as above the ankle amputation or a major limb intervention, graft revision, thrombectomy, and new bypass or thrombolysis. Secondary efficacy and safety outcomes were the occurrence of a major adverse limb event at any time or post-operative death within 30 days, minor interventions, a major adverse cardiovascular event defined as a composite of myocardial infarction, stroke or death from any cause, and serious adverse events. The Basel II trial reported amputation-free survival as a primary endpoint, defined as time to first major above the ankle amputation or death from any cause, whichever occurred first. Secondary outcomes included death from any cause, major amputation of the trial leg, major adverse limb event, male, defined as major amputation of the trial leg or any additional major revascularization intervention to the trial leg following the first intervention, major adverse cardiac event, MACE, defined as chronic limb-threatening ischemia or major amputation affecting the non-trial leg, myocardial infarction, transient ischemic attack or stroke. Reintervention, defined as a repeat of the same type of procedure, alternative revascularization procedure to the first procedure after randomization, and morbidity and death within 30 days. So different outcome variables give us different information. What are the advantages and disadvantages of those different endpoints used? The ones you used and the ones the Basel II trial used, so amputation-free survival, death and major limb event, even simple limb salvage, etc. What are the advantages and disadvantages of each? So, as you may or may not imagine, a lot of thought went into kind of picking the endpoints. You know, actually we're in communication with, with Dr. Bradbury way back in the beginning during, during the design, but a multidisciplinary group and our executive committee tackled this question in, in great detail. And the reason why we ultimately felt that amputation-free survival was not the best option as the primary endpoint was it just is not sensitive enough to the impact of the initial revascularization. So what it does is it, it focuses on mortality, and mor mortality, as we all know, our patients are very sick, they have very high mortality rates, but that's not all driven by the CLTI. It might be in part, but in our view, kind of inappropriately weights uh, the endpoint in a way that's not directly stemming from the intervention. So. Alec, you can talk about why we think meal-free survival is better, but we've long thought that amputation-free survival is, is not the best metric for this particular investigational question. And I think it's important to consider other important events in the life of a patient with CLTI, aside from death and amputation. You know, major interventions are one such element. Uh, we specifically chose not to include all interventions because in endovascular therapy, use of minor, what we call minor interventions, such as angioplasty or stenting or even uh, surgical patch angioplasty, are expected. That's part of the course for endovascular therapy. But major interventions, such as thrombolysis, new bypass graft, these are events that require hospitalization and are significant events in the, in the life of a patient. And so we felt that it was important to include those as well. And this is very similar to what's happening in the coronary trials. In the coronary trials that compare uh, PCI with cabbage, often other measures such as reintervention are used as well for composite endpoints for this very reason. So you've started what I hope is an area of 
really good studies to gather evidence on this subject, like have been in coronary pathology and in carotids and in AAA. So do you think for future research outcomes should be harmonized in CLTI research? And linked to that, what do you think is the best outcome to report nowadays? Yeah, tough question. You know, personal view is that we need to, as a multidisciplinary group interested in really moving the ball forward, we need to relook at mail. If you look at coronary trials and some of the drug trials, they use a completely different definition of mail. So even mail is not harmonized. You know, mail was devised over a decade ago as a way to benchmark new endotechnology. So it wasn't even designed you know, with a, cl- a randomized clinical trial like Pastor Basil in mind. So much time has passed. We've learned a tremendous amount. I think the time is right to really sit down and figure out exactly what the answer to that question is. What is the next generation of endpoints? There's a huge 80-year experience in the cancer world that we can lean on tumor-free survival, recurrence, all of that, they've gone through the exact same exercise that we have and tried to figure out what's most important to the patient, what's the best measure of success of a chemo agent or radiation therapy, and there's no need for us to kind of reinvent the wheel. They're very similar diseases. So let's move on to perioperative and late cardiovascular events and death. In the BCLI trial, about one in five surgical patients and one in three endovascular patients suffered a major adverse perioperative limb event, one in 10 a myocardial infarction, one in 20 a stroke, and half of the patients in the trial suffered from death or a major adverse event at a medium follow-up of less than three years. In the BASIL-2 trial, 63% of the patients in the vein bypass group and 53% in the best endovascular treatment group had a major amputation or died in a medium follow-up of 3.3 years, and about 40% in both groups suffered a major adverse cardiac event. What can we learn from this? Well, I think what we can learn from it is the fact that death is still a big issue for these patients. They have very high mortality, and I think we need to rethink about how we approach workup of coronary artery disease in these patients. Maybe we should be more aggressive in both trying to diagnose and treat coronary artery disease. Maybe not, but certainly we need to think about how to tackle the issue of such high mortality, because these patients have higher mortality than, I would say, most cancers. What's interesting is, you know, what's happening in the coronary world? Why have they had such dramatic success in dropping their mortality rates over the last three to four decades? You know, one of the things they're doing is looking at, patient comes in with an event, they're looking back to see what was the status of the patient six months before or one year before, what did we miss in terms of risk reduction that we can do. And we're also entering an era of, you know, an appreciation for so-called polyvascular disease. So we tend to think of, you know, patients with carotid disease or patients with coronary disease or peripheral disease, not in any sophisticated way in terms of, oh, this patient has both coronary and peripheral vascular and carotid disease, he or she is probably a different type of patient than someone with isolated carotid disease. And what are the things that we can do, you know, as Alex said, to, to think about preventing mortality in that particular super high-risk patient. So I guess the take-home is kind of a broad rethinking of all of the risk factors combined, kind of focused thinking as we do in our own little 
kind of bubble. So we're reaching the end of this Q&A series. Now I want to ask you about the next steps in CLTI research. What are the next questions that should be prioritized in the research of this area? A couple of thoughts. I think there really is a need to understand the impact of what we're doing at the wound level, at the ulcer level, at the tissue perfusion level. And we don't really have a good sense of that. We, we all know that ABIs are very suboptimal. TBIs are, are better, but not performed in many institutions. And we need, you know, a real-time metric of how did we do during the procedure we just did? How does it stack up three days later or a week later or three weeks later? So sort of real-time sense of how much we need for a given wound, what's going to get us there in terms of which combination of, you know, we haven't even talked at all about hybrid procedures. We do an enormous number of kind of mixing and matching of, of open and endo. So just more sophisticated awareness of what we're getting at the foot and wound level for what we do, that to me, is a big, obvious, glaring need. We also have to move away from the open versus endo conversation. I think Best CLI made it clear that the infrangible bypass is not dead. It's actually a procedure that needs to be taught and learned and applied to a proportion of our patients. But we need to go further and understand which cohorts of patients with CLTI are best treated by bypass, and which cohorts are best treated by endo, and which cohorts are best treated by hybrid procedures. In terms of endo, there's so many different interventions that, that are currently being used, but which are better for what? And there, there's a, an enormous amount of work that still needs to be done in this space to figure out what's best for whom and, for, and when. Out of these questions, can we get answers uh, with the data that's already been gathered by Best Eli? Yes, I think Best CLI is going to be able to answer some of these questions, but I suspect that other trials are going to have to tackle what we cannot answer. Are you going to organize any other trials? <laughs> uh, we will see. I can answer that question. <laughs> Alec, Matt, it has been a real pleasure, as always. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much. And thank you all for listening. Remember, all ESVS podcasts are available open access just about everywhere, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the ESVS library. We'll be back soon with more podcasts. Keep tuned. Talk to you soon. Bye.